Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, Slaney. Hey, it's Duanna. And welcome to another special episode of Show Your Work. This is the second part of our interview with author Taylor Jenkins Reid, who has written the bestseller, Tearing Up Your Nightstand, Daisy Jones and the Six. So we're approaching this as part book club. I mean, we deep dive on the characters, particularly because, you know, Duane, after you read the book, I had read it first, you read it, and you were on holiday reading it, and you were texting me from holiday like talking about the characters. Like they were real people. Correct. We were gossiping <laughs> about these fictional people. Yes. Both of us want the tour t-shirt. Like you are, you and Daisy have the same hair right now, even the same hoop earrings. I mean, uh, I'm not going to say it was inspired by Daisy Jones. It 100% was. But yes, in the ongoing saga of my hair, that's part of the origin story. But the great thing about this episode is that Taylor Jenkins Reid gossips about them with us. She is as into them as we are. And so by this point, you've read all about it and you know how sexy Billy is when he's wearing denim on denim, or maybe you're a grand person or maybe somebody else. So we'll get into all that. Plus, plus Daisy Jones and the Six is being turned into a 13-part series on Amazon produced by Reese Witherspoon. Spoiler. <laughs> it's accessible on the internet. We'll get into all that and find out what happened when Taylor actually got that phone call. Plus, uh, there may be a cameo appearance in the book that you will recognize. So before you press play, make sure you have read the whole thing. Get ready. And let us know if you agree that Karen was the best. We'll be back after this episode. Enjoy. Because it's straight gossip, let's start with the narrative structure. Mm -hmm. Because this is an oral history. Yeah. And so essentially, these are people gossiping about an album, a band, mm -hmm. a moment in time, like for this community of people. Yeah. Was it the only narrative that you considered? Yes. I never considered writing this book in any other way. I could not – it wasn't even like I was thinking, how will I do this? I think I'll do it as an oral history. I think that's the only way to do it. It was, I'm going to write an oral history about a 70s rock band. Um, so I couldn't have conceived of a different way to do it. And, and to be honest, I think if I had tried to do a traditional narrative, I don't think I would have succeeded. Um, I think the reason why the book works as it's written is because – um, there's a, I'm trying to tap into like a part of your brain where you go, wait, did this happen? Did this really happen? I've never heard of this band, you know? And I think you can only do that if you're using a nonfiction structure to tell a fictional story. Mm. That's where the meta narrative comes in. That's where the, that's where the voyeuristic piece and, and like, let me peel back the curtain and see, um, you know, the the truth behind the legend. I can only set up the legend if I'm presenting it to you as if it's legitimate. Um, and it's funny, a friend of mine who, you know, I talk to all day, every day, but I she hadn't read the book yet. She came with me when I went to New York and I was doing all this media and she was like behind the scenes of like when I was on Strahan and Sarah or whatever. And she comes to me afterwards, she's like, oh, wait, I didn't get that, like, we're supposed to pretend this is a real band. I'm like, no, you're not supposed to pretend it's a real band. People are thinking it's a real band. Like, and she's like, oh, I didn't get it. It was like this thing on a thing. I'm like, no, I'm just writing fiction, but I'm trying to do it in a way where it feels like mm -hmm. nonfiction. And I, and I had to do it in that structure in order for it to feel like that to me. And that's how you get all those people. There are eight plus main voices and yeah. then some, right, yeah. who all believe, not believe, who all have their own narrative of how this all yeah. happened. They're the center of their own story. I mean, that's what's really fun about something like this is 
you know, Daisy and Billy are the lead singers of the band. In theory, they're the they're the lead people in this story. But, you know, Graham and Karen are the, you know, the lead guitarist and the bassist and, and the keyboardist. Like, they have their own story. And Warren's the drummer, and he thinks he's, you know, the center of his own story. And Eddie is the rhythm guitarist. And my favorite thing was one of Writing Eddie was one of my favorite parts. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, Eddie is just like the bitchiest person. Yes, I love so him. Yeah. yeah, and let me tell you, like, that storyline completely, 100% was inspired by the Eagles. I was watching, there's a three-hour documentary about the Eagles called The History of the Eagles. I, even after my insane amounts of 70s music research, I'm still not a huge Eagles fan, like, you know, they don't grab me the way that some other bands do. But watching this documentary and watching all of these men just, like, bitch about each other in a documentary, I was like, this is gold. Like, no one talks about the fact that, like, men hold grudges, you know? I mean, that's part of what I really like that you guys, when you talk about, like, boy know, shit. Gr- yeah, girl <laughs> shit versus boy shit. And it's like, this narrative we have of, like, women being catty with each other, like, show me a dude who thinks a dude took something else from him. And, like, that's a petty man. Like, men are totally capable of it. So writing Eddie was really fun because he's so resentful of Billy for so long. And the way my husband puts it is, like, Eddie thinks that there's this massive feud between Billy and Eddie that's decades long, and Billy's like, Eddie who? <laughs> like it like, oh, yeah. right, Eddie was in the band. <laughs> right. That guy. Right. There's a, a line that I loved early on when he says, oh, we had a bad show, and he says, well, Billy reversed two of the verses. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. so you hung on to that <laughs> yes, for exactly. 25-plus exactly. years that he reversed It's like the, seething within you. He has a catalog yes. of all the wrongs. Yeah. Yes. I, I love it. But that's a highlight or low light for him, whereas it wouldn't even make it into Billy's, like, catalog of recollections. Because right. he was having a whole other life yeah, at the same time. Right. Which brings me to my most pressing story, or my most pressing question about the narrative yeah. of the story. Did Pete decline to be interviewed, or <laughs> did he not have, was he just not interesting enough to be included? So, so within the context of the book, yeah, with- Pete has declined to be interviewed. There is a reason why Pete is not within the book, but is, um, but you do hear from at the end, which is now we're really getting into like the, the writing process of that. But um, there are some, and I won't spoil anything, so I have to talk around it, but there are rules when you're reading an oral history when it's not, when it's nonfiction, like this is true, um, the person that's presenting the story is a unbiased third party. Um, people that have declined to participate have done that for a reason. People that whose voices you don't hear from might have passed on. You know, there are a lot of rules to this. And I wanted from the beginning to subvert those rules and to say, you've assumed that we have a deal, but we don't have a deal. And there's going to be things about this that um, – that aren't going to play by those rules. So you go the whole book, and this is just a small piece. It's not spoiling anything, but you haven't heard from Pete. You haven't heard Pete's side of it. Everyone's talking about Pete. And there's a lot of other characters where that's happening, and the reason they haven't chimed in is because they're dead. Pete's not dead. He just didn't want to be a part of it. This was not the center of Pete's life. Mm -hmm. This big thing that you think you want to find out about, Pete's like, yeah, I did that, and then I went on to do something else, which I think is like – it was fun to write that character, but it was also fun to play with the idea of, like, don't assume just because you don't hear from somebody that they're dead. That's not necessarily what's happening. I love that. That is so clever. And, I mean, it also meets – that's why people feel this is real. That's why when we were reading it, like, both of us were saying – I, in particular, was like, can I YouTube this song? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we want, like, Duanna and I – I just wanted the merch. Yeah, yeah. Duanna want, wants the merch. I do, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what's funny? So Random House and my publisher in the UK, um, which is also another separate part of Random House, both of them have created such incredible – like fake merch for this band to the point where like in my office, like I've got Daisy Jones tote bags. I've got I'm sorry. guitar picks. And are we, we got to get you a tote bag. Okay. Are we it's the first really on the great. list to receive these things? You know what? Yes. I'm so proud of the tote bag. I'm so jazzed about it because it literally just says, I am not a muse. I am the somebody. End of story. Which is, you know, a big quote from Daisy. Um, and it's just like black 
on a tote bag, and I, I just love it. Um, but, like, there's guitar picks, there's wristbands, there's postcards. It's like, like there's bookmarks that are fake tickets. Like, ev- there's even a – Random House made a trailer for the book that's made to look like a teaser for an episode of Behind the Music, which is just like – I was looking at it, and I'm like, how did you make this fake Rolling Stone cover, and you made this album cover? It's like, you're convincing me this happened, and it didn't. Um, but it's been the – like, it's so, so cool to see them make that stuff. So let me ask you this about writing it in this way. And given that this is the narrative structure, it's an oral history, without talking about who the person asking the questions mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. did you also ask the questions? Is that like, you know, when we talk about J.K. Rowling and mm-hmm. all the things that she's created, she's got this box full of things that, yeah. you know, don't make it into the book, but that she needed in order to write mm-hmm. the book. Mm-hmm. So do you have pages and pages of questions that the interviewer prepared to elicit these responses? Um, that's a really good question. I don't have that. I ha- That existed mainly in my head. What I do have is that there, were, there was initially a lot more um, transcripts and things that didn't fit into an oral history per se that I that I used those to to get into the characters and I thought they would be part of the draft but then when I went back to my second third draft I'm like actually all this work that I did I don't need that anymore I'm able to sum you know sum that up by you know having Eddie say this and then Billy saying that and then and then you get the point um, but I actually went back to my very very first draft um, like two or three days ago by accident because I was trying to open something else. And I looked and it was just very, very different. Like the book originally opens with like all of these people going on the record and being like, why did we break up? I don't know. It's like, that was like, <laughs> that was like the big thing because there's actually only, in my opinion, there's really only two people that truly know why the band fully broke up. Um, and none of those people are in the six. And so that was like the beginning of it was like, I don't know, man, I don't know what happened in my own band, you know? And then I, I scrapped that and just started the way that it starts. Um, But there's a lot of like extra material in that regard. Can you talk a little bit about the voices? Because one of the things that, uh, you know, I'm a greedy reader, so I'm racing through this and just, uh, and you were on text, I was away. And (laughs) so you're on text and I'm over the shoulder to my husband going, yeah, I love this book. And he's like, can I read it? I don't know. I'm still on it. Um, But so I'm reading carefully, but there are times where you assume that the next paragraph is going to come from somebody from Mm -hmm. a speaker. And then as soon as you start reading, having missed the, you know, the name of who it is, you go, oh no, that's not their voice at all. Their voices are super, super clear. And obviously as somebody who works in, in television as well, where voice is everything, I thought, how, how did they come into your head fully formed or what happened? You know, it, the, when, I think part of the reason why I felt comfortable taking this style of book on is because I mean, you know, this is my sixth book. The one thing that I've always felt very confident about, I- I've grown in a lot of ways as a writer and I need to continue to grow and and that's important. I've always felt very confident about dialogue. I feel like I hear how people talk and I hear people in my head and I can, and I can put that on paper. So part of it was, you know, I- I'm not a person who walks around being like, you know, man, blah, blah, blah. But when I'm writing Warren, that's how I hear him in my head. I hear, you know a certain accent that someone's talking in. I I hear those things. But what it really was more than anything is point of view. It's at some point you get to know the characters so well that you start to say, Karen wouldn't care about this information. There's no way Karen would ever relay that. She wouldn't find it interesting. She wouldn't remember it. You know who'd remember it? Warren. You know, if it's like um, something that, if it's like a hot woman that walks in you know, it's like Warren's going to notice that. And I think those are the things that go the farthest. It's not necess- It's not just how they talk, but what are they inspired to say? What actually are they preoccupied with? And, and that was fine-tuning. There were definitely times where Graham would say something, and I'd be like, I don't think Graham's the person to say this, but I don't know who would say it, but I need someone to say it. And so you start to, to figure that out. But... Um, 
it was it was like hearing it, understanding their point of view, and then the last piece was starting to pay attention to who would have verbal tics because a lot of people have phrases that they fall upon or ways that they like to end a sentence. Um, there are people, you know, who'll be talking and every third sentence like, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? And I thought these, a lot of these guys are so living in their own world that they can have their own speech patterns. They can, they can, um, you know, speak in ways that the rest of us would have maybe long ago abandoned. And so that was like, Eddie starts to have a little bit more verbal tics. So like Freddie Mendoza, who's the photographer, like everything at the end of his sentences is like, he's always checking in like, you, you get me, you understand, you understand, you know? And it was trying to think who would have that verbal tick? When would they use it? You know, I was getting really into the weeds about it, but I think I just did one whole draft where I was getting everyone's voice down. It's very, very clear and very distinct. That's great. Thank you. And I worked, I worked very hard on it, so thank you. No, in particular, like, we would laugh because these people are real to us now. Yeah. And I think you and I, Duanna, had one exchange where we were, we were laughing about Warren because fucking Warren doesn't know anything. Like, <laughs> nothing. Like, and, and she hears so much. According to you, like, Warren thinks he knows all the things. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. but, like, Warren is fucking, like, yeah. out there. Like, yeah. you know, fucking Warren didn't yes. pay attention to shit. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that was part of the comedy of it. Like, yes. that's why it's funny. Yes. But that's why it feels real because, of course, there is always someone in a group who, who misses everything or misses nothing that's important to him only. Exactly. And I think that is, you know, that's part of the work of it, right? Is going, you can have a group of people. I think this is where uh, any project that has sort of a group of people in a situation sort of lives or dies is like, yeah, you might all be, I don't know, running away from the monster in the high school or whatnot, but it's its when it's only one perspective, that's when it gets kind of bland and boring. It's going, no, there are so many stories happening at once. Right, right. But also what can be interesting is, you know, there are stories where you have a lot of different perspectives all at once, and those perspectives respect each other. And then there are times when you have a lot of perspectives and the people don't respect each other. And that's what was fun about this is, you know, have somebody like Karen and Daisy and they're very different and they have different opinions on, on how they're going to navigate the world, but they fundamentally respect one another. And so within the book, even after 40 years, even when they may, Karen may say like, I don't like that Daisy did that. She's always also defending Daisy's right to do that. Whereas, you know, Eddie and Billy or someone like Warren, there's not a sense of like, I don't like what he did, but I still like him. It's like, no, man, that guy sucks, you know, um, which which is just really fun. Like that was the most fun part of writing this is, is you know, Billy, Billy saying something like, you know, well, it was really everybody's band and Graham being like, Billy had no idea what a bulldozer he was. <laughs> it's like you just the ability to have people talk shit about each other um, behind their backs was like, why didn't I do this before? <laughs> So follow along with me for a second. I'm, I, I, have, I, I promise you I'm taking you somewhere. Okay. Um, not too long ago, we did a podcast, an episode, where we were kind of reviewing the week in media, and we called it old school media, because Oprah had done this, like, um, after show about Neverland or mm-hmm. leaving Neverland, and Gail King had yes. sat down with R. Kelly. And so on the podcast, Duane and I talked about how – you know, back in the 90s and the early 2000s, we had blockbuster interviews with celebrities who were willing to get dirty, yes. probably because yeah. they had to, because they mm-hmm. were coming out of like a scandal or something. But not too long afterwards, that kind of shut down. That's why we're calling it old school. Mm-hmm. The must-see celebrity interview doesn't happen anymore for a variety of reasons, mm-hmm. social media, mm-hmm. the way we consume it, but also because... More and more of the big ones aren't talking anymore. Beyonce doesn't talk. I mean, that's like the dream. Like, I'm so impressed by it. Also, like Taylor Swift, when she's like, I'm not going to let you interview me. I'm just going to write my own thing. Right. It's like, it's amazing. But it's it's amazing for them. I'm like, I love, yeah. I love that for you. But my favorite thing, my favorite, favorite thing is like, somebody gets divorced, I want to see the Vanity Fair interview. Like, that's what I'm waiting for. And the last, I feel like the last one we had was Jennifer Garner, which was so long ago. Yeah. I, I want... You know, Jennifer Aniston being on the cover of Vanity Fair in 2005 
I love that wrapped you know in that year. blanket. Oh, changed my <laughs> life, man. I was like, you know, she's doing that whole thing about Billy Idol wants his hair back and all that. Yeah. And I was, I remember like I was, uh, I just broken up with my boyfriend. I just moved to Los Angeles. I knew nobody. I was super alone. I had no plans all weekend. I had this like, like really intense job and I didn't know anybody. And I was like, oh, the Jen- Jennifer Hansen's on Vanity Fair. And like, that was my weekend. And it was fantastic. It, I felt connected to her. I don't think we, I, we don't have that in the same way. And we're connecting to celebrities in a different way that is like, there's plus and minuses to it. I don't think Chrissy Teigen would, like, I don't think I would realize how much I love her in an old school media way. Mm-hmm. She's very new school. And there's a huge benefit to that because I would like to marry her. I love her Correct. so much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think that there's just no incentive for celebrities to do it anymore. But I think that's what you're tapping into here yeah. a little bit. Now, how intentional was that? That's where I'm coming oh, at. Oh, yeah. Well, very, very. Because what I'm writing is what I want to read. So when I'm writing about, like, the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo and she's a movie star and she's revealing all the secrets of her life, it's because I want to read that. I when I'm When I'm, you know, writing an oral history of a 70s rock band, it's because, you know, I read an oral history of – there is an oral history in Vanity Fair – of Laurel Canyon. So it was like Joni Mitchell, um, and I don't remember who from Crosby, Stills, and Nash was talking, but there were a couple people there, and like Glenn Fry was, you know. Um, I I wanted more of that. Those things are more rare nowadays that you get that unfiltered access, and you feel like you're there, and you're a part of it, and you're connecting. So when I'm writing things, it's because that's what I want to read. If I could write fake Vanity Fair profiles. Oh my God. Like I should just do a short story that's just like a fake Vanity Fair profile. Oh say, my God. Maybe <laughs> you can. It's all happening in my head right now. Like I would love that. I the um the book that I'm writing now is very much um in in that vein or inspired by, you know, the woman on the cover of Vanity Fair, it's like, I'm not taking it anymore, um, which is just one of my favorite tropes that that we have. Um, I just, I can't get enough of it. I also wonder, and this is in no way uh, predetermined, uh, this is off the top of my head, but I wonder if it's because of the rise of therapy. Like, I don't oh, know if celebrities had somebody to talk to in that kind of open, vulnerable way um, 15, 20, a generation ago. Well, Daisy right? wouldn't have. No. Yeah, yeah. But that's so true. You sit down with a writer who goes, just tell me. It's okay. Like, let's have another cocktail. Tell me. And they go, okay, well, here's the thing. And yeah. they open up and pour it all out. And you do feel like you're sitting there on the couch for the weekend with your girlfriend. And then the flip side of that, I immediately go to, like, how many times did they regret it? You know, like, like, did Jennifer Aniston read that profile and go, I shouldn't have said all that. I shouldn't have been crying. I shouldn't have done that. Or was she looking at it and going, they're going to love this. Like, which is, you know, which is how I would have felt. Like, um, I don't know. I don't, that's very interesting. Like, they did expose themselves more. That's very vulnerable. Maybe celebrities are really happy that they don't have to do that now or feel disinclined to do it now. But I don't know. I don't, I will always love Jennifer Aniston because of like all of 2005 and the way that she handled it. I just, I will, I don't care. Like I have no beef with Angelina Jolie at all, which I'm sure she's very relieved to hear. Um, But like, I, I just will always have affection for her because she was appeared, maybe I should say very vulnerable. What, let me just sort of like mirror it back to you. What you just shared with us in gossiping about that, though, is that you're also associating her with that time in your life. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like, it'd be really different. Like, somebody else reading the same piece who maybe wasn't as lonely and hadn't just relocated. Totally. Would be either reaching out or detaching in a different way, like, which goes back to gossip and why Mm -hmm. our conversations about it reveal more about us. Mm -hmm. But in terms of Daisy and what she revealed and Mm -hmm. didn't reveal and Mm -hmm. when and how she did it. What I love about how it reads so true is that there are times when I feel like Daisy, like I have cringed through the book when Daisy at certain parts, I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) We need to reword that. (laughs) We need to. Yeah. And 
that's what feels real to your point. Mm-hmm. Like, is she going to regret this late? There are probably parts of this that Daisy regrets. Yeah. A little bit. You're saying Even going, now, you mean? Yeah. Interesting. It could be. I mean, she's I 70. So. She, like, she's going on the record at the age of 70, and I, or like close to 70. Um, I, but I don't disagree with, with your premise, which is that but all of these people are showing vulnerabilities that are not perfect and, and somewhat embarrassing. Um, do they understand how embarrassing those things are? Not all the time. Well, Eddie doesn't. Eddie <laughs> certainly doesn't. There are, t- there are times that Daisy's in on the joke and times that she's yeah. not. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's funny because there there will be moments where uh, I, in my head, she's making a joke, but, but it's been reflected back to me that they think Daisy's being sincere. And it's like, well, Daisy's funnier than maybe you're giving her a little bit of credit for. Like, there's a, a line where she's like, um, you know, give me credit. I know how ridiculous I am. You mm. know, she's she's aware and she's not aware. She's both, which yeah. is really what most people are. Like, we think we're self-aware, but we can only see, you know, what, like, whatever percentage of, of the way that we come across. But it makes me think of the person who maybe is still themselves and the person who maybe has the least that they – you talked about people who maybe regret what they said – but I am hard-pressed to find something that Karen said that she would regret. <laughs> sure. Sure. I mean, Karen's much more further in the process of understanding herself than maybe anyone in the book. She's – she I, – I think I texted you at one point and just said, Karen. Um, <laughs> and then I was like, yeah. <laughs> she's really um, – She's lovely, I think, because I think a lot of us, not all of us are daisies, right? Like right. most of oh, us yeah. are. Most of like, us are not daisies. So, right. Yeah, the world can't be full of daisies. Right. But a lot of us can see Karen and kind of go, yeah, I probably would be reasonable and buy a pad with my money. I, I wish I yeah. blew it all. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I prob- like I wish I bought some car and crashed it, but I probably would be responsible yeah. with it and so forth. Yeah. Um. Is she, like, do you feel like she's getting her due as people mm. meet uh, Daisy and Billy and, and Camila and everybody? Yes and no. I think, here's what I'll say. I think Karen's probably, people ask me, like, you know, which character is closest to who you are. And I think Karen is probably closest to who I am, although there's a lot of things about us that are different. But I think Karen could have gone and done a number of things. She didn't have to be a rock star. She wanted to be a rock star, and so she is. But I think she's, you know, Daisy could not exist in the real world. She has to exist as a rock star. That's, you know, her, her personality is, a, is of that. Karen um, is just much more in control. Um, I think that when people are excited about the book, they're excited to read about Daisy and Billy. I think when people finish the book, the story that Graham and Karen have – um, is one that does touch a nerve for a number of reasons. But I was very, very um, clear in my mind about what I wanted to do with the character of Karen, which is that um, I wanted to show a woman somewhat unconflicted about the choice to not have children. Um, I don't know why it's taken us such a long time to come to terms with the idea that some people, some women just don't want children. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But in my experience, my friends that don't want children are told that they'll change their mind or um, told that that they don't know what they're talking about or they don't know themselves. Um, And I I have a very specific friend. She's very young. She's... um, She's 10 years younger than me, so she's, she's 25. And she's known since she, since she was a teenager. She's like, I don't want to have kids. And um, she every time she would talk about it, people would tell her um, she didn't know what she was saying. And I just felt like I want to write a woman for you that um, you can look to. Like when people are giving you over time, you can be like, you know what? Karen would get it. Karen understands. Um, so that was very, very important to me from, from the beginning with Karen. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Listen, I have chosen not to have children and am very, very sure about it. And of course, that's how I related to Karen but I think even stronger, the way I related to Karen was um, Karen knew that the time that she was in the six was, like, not her time. Right. Like, and I think that that happens to a lot of us, either on work projects where you're not the lead and you are the support and later you're going to get the lead. But I don't think that that's represented in fiction as mm-hmm. much because we focus on the leads. Mm-hmm. We think that's where the story is. Mm-hmm. And what really has resonated, and I think why your book is so complete, is because you've given us a character like Karen and Graham mm-hmm. who are living their own lives. Like, right. let's not forget right. that just because they weren't the lead of this band, they're living their own lives. Yeah. And I actually think that when this gets adapted, which we'll get to, because especially it's going to be a series, Karen's going to be one of those characters who emerges like, even though tonally this is not the same, who emerges like Sandra Oh as Christina mm-hmm. Yang in Grey's mm-hmm. Anatomy. You know how like Grey's Anatomy mm-hmm. is about Meredith and yeah. Derek and whatever, of and course. then like fucking five episodes in, we were like, Christina Yang yes. is the shit. Yeah. Well, and I the think reason, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, and the reason for that is because you realize in both cases, both with um, Christina Yang and Karen Karen, whose last name is already lost to history, yeah. even though I know she has <laughs> but one. But that's exact. yes, but that's um, exactly the point. Yeah. They arrive fully formed. Like Karen, and I think we'll get to this later too, but Karen and Christina arrives as a grown woman. Mm-hmm. Even though I don't yeah. know how old she was mm-hmm. by numerically, yeah. she's a grown person who knows herself already. Right. And we don't see her, that's what is is interesting is we don't see her question herself, which doesn't mean, as you point out, that she doesn't have a full story and a full drama of choices. A lot of these stories, especially Daisy and Billy, are a story of trying to find who you are, what's important to you, what do you want, where are you going? Karen knows the answers to all of those things at the beginning of this book. There's still inherent drama in how she navigates the world trying to get there. But um, she's she's very clear on who she is. Um, and I think it makes it easier when she's clear on who she is to be supportive of someone like Daisy because um, it's she has the ability to have that generosity of spirit. I'm not in down in the trenches trying to figure out what I want. I know what I want. I'm here to watch you try to figure it out and support you as you're trying to do that. Um, but, it, you know, it's the same – the same way like Karen and Camila, Billy's wife, are very close. Um, I think Karen understands um, where she's going. And so she can be supportive of the fact that other women want to go to different places than she does. So there's a moment that really crystallizes that for me. And I thought, I, and I think I yapped to you about it and you were like, uh-huh. Um, <laughs> that Karen points out Daisy's Uh, lack of musical education. Mm -hmm. And I just went like, zing! Mm -hmm. Um, That she only knows what she knows, Mm -hmm. right? That you can't say, transpose this into such and such a place or whatnot. And I I read that passage so many times waiting for the barb in it, waiting for the kind of bitchy moment in it, but it's not there. She's fine with that because why? Because only Daisy can be Daisy. I mean, that's the thing. If you know that you're really good at something, like, I think... When you're feeling confident, it's very easy to be magnanimous. It's very easy to say, you know, I like who I am, so let me praise who you are. It's only when I don't have enough that I find it difficult to admit other people have more. Um, I'm only jealous when when I don't have what I want. Karen has what she wants. Daisy is not classically trained. She has, I mean, it's like it's like when you look at like how people always used to talk about like Green Day only knows three chords, whatever. It's like, well, okay, they've sold a lot of records for people that have only that only know three chords I'm not sure what your problem is like people like their music like how is that a dig Daisy's taking what Daisy has and making so much out of it so there's not actually anything wrong with it if it's working Daisy's not doing anything wrong but I think if you're Karen and you want to be Daisy 
isn't that the perfect opportunity, right, to say, oh, well, she's not as good as me. She doesn't have what I have. But Karen doesn't want to be Daisy. Karen wants to be Karen. So there's no, there's no beef there. And, I mean, we haven't even gotten to the series. Yes, I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So the series. Yeah. It's going to be a TV show. It sure is. Yeah. So um, something that you pointed out, uh, Lainey, that I think is a really a good point is uh, that people don't necessarily know how that all works out because as far as everybody's concerned, the book came out in March. Right. So, and the series right. is, is well in the works yes. kind of thing. So yes. It was sold, what, nine months pre-publication? Yeah. Right? Take it us was through sold, the process yeah. a little bit. Yeah. So a lot of books get submitted to Hella Sunshine, which is Reese Witherspoon's production. In, in general, I think you want Reese Witherspoon to make your book into a movie or a TV show. Um, so when I finished this book, my agent and my book-to-film team both felt like it was a good space for Reese Witherspoon because of its, you know, its female focus. And um, they had it on, you know, record somewhere that she was into Fleetwood Mac, so she would like this. It happens to be that the woman that runs Reese Witherspoon's film and TV arm, Lauren Levy Neustadter, is married to the screenwriter Scott Neustadter, part of Neustadter and Weber, who are a writing team um, who did they, their first uh, movie was 500 Days of Summer, which was uh-huh. like a movie that I loved. Um, and they most recently did The Disaster Artist, with they, they got nominated for an Oscar. But in between that, they do a lot of book-to-film adaptations. And we knew, because my team knew um, knew them, that Scott Neustadter was really into Fleetwood Mac. So the idea was, let's submit it to Scott Neustadter, Michael Weber, and Hello Sunshine at the same time. And if they spark to it, they could do it together. This would be the first time that Lauren Levy Neustadter at the center of this would be working with, you know, her her company and her husband at the same time. Um, you know, you submit a lot of things hoping that something crazy like that will happen. This just happened to work. And so um, Scott Neustadter started reading it. Um, Lauren Levy Neustadter started reading it and then sent it to Reese to read it. She read it in like a day and contacted my people on a weekend and said, we want this book. Please take it off the table. And um, and I was like, you've got to be shitting me right now. <laughs> like it was like – it was so crazy to see this email that she had sent my management team that they had forwarded to me at like 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday where she was like, you know, this is what I like about it. This is what I can do with it. This is who I am. So you read an email that was oh, yeah. written by Reese Oh, yeah. Oh, no. And, and you know, it, as they as they um, often say on Passover, Dianu, like, if it had only been that, it would have been enough. Like, <laughs> you know? But, and yet, like, um, you know, I think it was like Saturday, I got that email. It was a Monday. I was having lunch with Lauren Levy Neustadter, and then I was having, or I had breakfast with Lauren Levy Neustadter, and then I had lunch with Scott Neustadter. Um, and, and I was like, yeah, but yep, take it, take it. Please, and are they, it. are they wooing you? They were wooing me, which was okay. absurd. So I was like, are you get being out of chill? town? Are you now? Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, so, so here's, here's what I will say. There is a version of myself that clicks in around anyone like famous or, or someone that I think is cool, where I almost always act like, oh, I totally belong here. This is fine. Oh, yeah. Reese Witherspoon. Good. Yeah. Great. Cool. She's cool. <laughs> yep. Um, I, I don't know. I, it comes from like working in casting because that's what I did out of, out of college. And so you'd meet famous people all the time and you couldn't act any other way than like, you know, we're here to do a job. Let's, you know. Um, so I, I remember like Scott Speedman came in like my second day of work and it was like, right. Felicity had like just ended and I was like, oh my God, Ben Cummington is here. He's right here. He's right there. He's right there. And I like had to excuse myself and like gather myself. And then I walked out and was like, Hey, you know, and like played it cool. Or like Josh Jackson came in and, and I was having this conversation with him and I was like, uh-huh. I love yeah, that you just totally. named two Canadians. I was going to say. Yeah. Oh yeah. There you go. That's your brand. Yeah. Well, understand that the WB in the nineties is my brand. So, um, you know, they just had a, a tap on Canadians. Um, I understand every word of what you just said. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, but so so I definitely like I'm able to be cool 
and then I'll pass out later, which is which is kind of how I did it. So I actually re- I remember I was having a conversation with Reese Witherspoon, and Lauren is watching me have this conversation because she like called Lauren's cell phone, and so I'm talking to Lauren's cell phone, and Reese is basically just saying like, you know, can we have the project? And I'm I'm like, yes. Mm-hmm. And the whole time I was so cool. I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, totally, totally. And then she just like mentioned Nicole Kidman. I don't even know why. Just like like as one does, like oh, and then my friend Nicole or something. And I saw my hand, which is holding the cell phone, start to go. <laughs> and I'm like, I Lauren say knows. right now your hand is shaking. Yeah, shaking. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I just I I was like, okay, Lauren's on to me. She knows that I'm not nearly as as okay with this as I am, and I'm pretending. Um, but it's been in. Incredible because Scott Newsetter, Michael Weber, and Lauren Levy Newsetter are so excited and passionate and cool. And just like every time I get to have, like, go to dinner or lunch or whatever, I'm like, oh my God, they want to hang out with me. Like, I feel, you know, but I play it very cool, you know, because you got to. And, and you didn't open it up. What? You said yes to their request to take it off the table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, look, here's here's the thing. There are other producers in Hollywood who, who like, Reese Witherspoon isn't the only producer in Hollywood. She is the only woman telling stories the way that she's telling them who has the power in both industries, okay. in both film and film and TV and publishing. Okay. There is no one like her. I took meetings and phone calls with other people, okay. but it quickly became clear to me that I was going through the motions. Like, I'm doing this and I'm doing my due diligence and I'm considering this person and that person, but... This is this is where I'm going. That's yeah. I think that's that's the background. Like that's what I, I want people out there to hear. Like yeah, this is inside baseball, but it's mm-hmm. these are the mechanics. I think that mm-hmm. are our our listeners are into. And I want to underline that when she says, "Please take it off the table," that yeah. means, and here's a dollar figure that we will offer yeah. you to do that. Yes. Like, yeah. but it, conceivably, you're meeting with all these other people who will meet or exceed or you know comparably be in the same dollar figure. Yeah. But when it comes down to it, what mattered to you was that it was that team. And then it was going to get made. And that's the thing. Mm. So, I mean, look, every single book I've done has been optioned. It's 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 not easy in an option, but they are a dime a dozen. Like, it's, you know, what matters is can you get to the first day of production? Reese Witherspoon can do that in a way that a lot of people cannot guarantee. Okay. And she has done that. I'm just going to be a footnote here for one more second and say that options mean that somebody pays you an amount of money to shop your project, to take it around, to show how it could be. They're buying the option to purchase it later. To later on. That's right. It's a smaller sort of fee against what they could make later. But for a million reasons, a lot of those projects don't, as you point out, make it to Mm -hmm. day one on the call sheet. Um, and it's still a nice payday for everybody involved yeah. or it's you get still a little work or change, whatever, yeah. but yeah. it's not actually going to happen. And your point, this is a guarantee that this is going to hit the yeah. screens. When? Air date? What yeah. do we have? Hard to say. Where Hard we say. are in development. So yeah. uh, let's go from, you know, the acquisition mm-hmm. to development. Yes. Where are we now then in development? Um, the pilot has been written. The rest of the episodes are going to begin to be written pretty soon. Oh, we soon. are far along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we are yeah. like in nine months time, this, a lot has been, so you're yeah. not kidding about Reese Witherspoon oh, no. she making kn- shit happen. Look, she knows what she's doing. Like, um, you know, we're, I think like they're hiring department heads. They're trying to figure out, you know, who's going to be producing the music for this, who, um, you know, all of that's, all of that's beginning. I have no, you know. Sometimes that goes very quickly. Sometimes that takes a really long time. I have no idea, you know, anything more. But but pre-production has begun. Did this you- is just – and you do the footnote on this just because we have talked about on our show before development. Mm-hmm. It can be 10 years. Yeah. Oh, my God. Things yeah. are stuck in development. Yeah. This is – Development hell. Pretty fucking fast. Very fast. Absolutely. From acquisition to – like you're in deep in pre production, yep. Nine months or like less, I yeah. guess. Like, okay, yeah. Because from a pilot script, you can cast mm-hmm. and you can start to maybe create a board and so forth. And absolutely, yeah. And so, did you write the pilot? No, 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 no. I'm not writing any of it. No, Scott Newsom, Michael Weber, and their team of people will write it. I sometimes adapt my own work um, when I. When we went wide with this and and submitted it to a number of places, including Reese, it was because it was with the 
intention that I would not adapt it myself. So talk a little bit then about what that will be like, because what that means then is that their team is going to write a pilot that maybe you give notes on Mm -hmm. uh, and a subsequent number of episodes and uh, you're a very busy person. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you intend to be on set every day or give notes every day. No. And, and nor like they've been really lovely and included me. Um, I don't know that they need to, they, they, um, I'm, I'm a bit more hands off with, with that. And the, and the reason is I've had a lot of experiences in Hollywood. I live in, in Los Angeles. Um, there's a lot that's really fun about it. There's a lot that also drives me crazy. Um, I've been on a set of a TV show that I wrote before. I don't like myself, you know, like I'm not my best per, like, it's just, it's a lot of clashing egos and and who's more important. And, and you're with these very charismatic people who it, you know, you become like, I find myself being like, well, well, does this really famous person like me? And like, I don't want to live my life that way. And, and, and so, um, I like to, I like to hang out on the fringes of that a bit more. I feel more comfortable. I feel more like myself. Um, I, the Hollywood game can be a little intoxicating. And when you start buying into the idea that like people are better than other people and people are more important than other people, it, it just like, I don't, I don't like, it, it is antithetical to how I view my life. And when I get lost in that, I'm just like, no, 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 this isn't me. This isn't. So I, I I'm going to hang back. I'll, I'll show up maybe once or twice, but they, they've said like, you know, like, would you do a cameo or would you? And it's like, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not my style. There is a cameo like role that I could play though. I, you're you're going to be in it. Well, yeah. actually, this does bring up a good point though, which is that which is what we haven't discussed, <laughs> which is that the beginning of the book, the um, the first person to actually chime in about all of this is a character named Elaine Chang, who is uh, is Laney. And I just assumed when I you did not know this really, until she told me like a few hours ago. Anyway, please continue. It um the the feeling I, I I'm sincere when I talk about like I'm playing it cool like I'm playing it cool right now I'm totally freaking out that I'm here like I literally read your website every day on Saturdays and Sundays I'm like oh no Lainey like I I literally I know I'm like oh we're already at what else oh for for the day like I'm, like, I'm completely like it's the only website that I read every day and and I'll have conversations and, my, and and I'll be like oh you know what Lainey said today and my husband's like what like he knows he's like ready um I you take gossip seriously in a way that I really have a lot of respect for and you also when we talk about unlearning I've been unlearning so many things about the way I receive messages about fame Me too. because of the things that you're pointing out even you know like I, some of my like when you opened my eyes to Justin Timberlake, I can't tell it's you my career work. Like, I, <laughs> I, I had I had no opinion. I just didn't have an opinion. And then like, I now literally I'll see a post and I'm like, oh, Lainey's gonna be so pissed at this. Like, <laughs> I'm like I, you know, I really, um, I really admire what you do, and I also my one of my like pet hobbies or interests is names. Oh. And when I'm, I will go over to the lifestyle section and I will look for, you know, your articles about names. But the best part is when people write in and tell you what they ended up going with. It's like my favorite thing in the world. I get very excited when that happens. <laughs> but anyway, like I said, you had no idea it was such a freak because I was playing it really cool. Um, but when I started writing this book and it is an oral history, so it was a different format for me. I felt really lost, like, for the first time. Like, it was a blank page, and I wasn't sure how to start when, for so many books, I'd felt very confident about how to start. And I didn't know how to begin to tell you the story through all of these voices of a band that didn't exist. How do I tell you the real story about Daisy when you don't know the legend of Daisy? And so what I did is I thought, well, what would Lainey say? How would Lainey describe Daisy? And then I, so I wrote that and that was a really good crutch for me. And then I was done with the first um, chapter or the first draft. And I went back and I go, well, I should probably disguise that this is Lainey and try to make it seem like I didn't completely steal her whole vibe in this book. Um, And then I thought, well, 
I don't want to do that because one, the other thing is like, there are so many things that I'm learning just about being like, I guess, Chinese Canadian. I always think of like Chinese American, but you're not American. Um, that I'm learning, like I, when I'm reading about your mom doing the, the, I guess it's fortunes or what yeah. it was. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I'm reading all those and I'm learning about that stuff. And I'm learning about like, it was actually just talking earlier about like, when you write about what crazy rich Asians meant to you, like I, I loved that movie. I didn't experience it in the same way that you did because I don't have that experience, but I got to see how important that is. And so to me, it was like, well, I can't take away the fact that you're a woman of color from this character. That's important to who this person is. And so suddenly it was like, well, now her last name's going to be Chang. And I was like, well, what do I call her? And I was like, her name's going to be Elaine Chang. <laughs> it's just gonna, I'm, just, I'm just literally just going to change her last name. And, and st- I, so I, I stole you and I, and I, I put you I appreciate book. that you didn't make it Scarlett Johansson. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Hey, everybody, Karen's the best. I mean, she's the best and Warren's the best, obviously. And, you know, uh, I guess we should say that uh, Elaine Chang is, is, uh, you know, kind of admirable as well, right? Page one. Page one. Thank you so much for listening along with us. We cannot wait to hear what you thought of this book and what reread you're on. I am actually making my way through my fourth reread as we speak. And maybe like next year we'll be able to do a follow-up podcast about Daisy Jones and the Six because we'll be talking about the show. I really look forward to that. Or like casting the show or the first trailer would have come out. Thank you all so much for your thoughts, for your reviews of the book. Um, We feel as excited about it as you do. And if you haven't got there yet, we can't wait to hear what you think. Subscribe to us where you get your podcasts, leave reviews and comments. Thank you so much for your feedback. And thank you to Taylor Jenkins Reid for hanging out with us. Uh, She's essentially an honorary podcaster at this point. And we'll be back next week. Bye. Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.